I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. You know how mystery always entails an element of wonder? The mystery and the wonder of the story you're about to hear hinge on the enigma of a little girl's tattoo. Now, little girls don't usually have tattoos, of course, and this is a dramatic story because of the marvelous way the hidden meaning behind this tattoo finally unraveled for that girl, but not until long after she was all grown up. Arriving in Salt Lake City in 1977 as a three-year-old adoptee from Korea was Sarah Jones. Inked into the skin of her arm was a pattern, maybe an emblem, at the very least an intentional design consisting of a cross with four dots below it. And decades would pass before she'd know why she'd been given that tattoo at such a young age. And in the process of finding out what its purpose was, her whole life changed. But young Sarah's adoptive parents wanted their daughter to assimilate as easily as possible into her new Utah community, and they quickly had the tattoo removed. Even now, unless people know my story, they don't know to look at my arm and notice anything different. I mean, the plastic surgeon did their job <laughs> well. Um, and it, you know, it uh, did its intended purpose, which is to let me live a life here in America without eyes on something that would distract people who didn't understand my story, right? That was my adoptive parents' intent. You know, I, I definitely understand the good intent that was there, especially in, you know, growing up in the LDS religion, uh, where like many cultures in the 1970s, tattoos were not a thing like they are now. Sarah's parents had had a hard time conceiving children of their own, so they turned to adoption twice. My Older sisters adopted from Korea, from a different city called Busan. Um, and then they gave birth to my younger sister, who's the biological daughter. And then I was adopted last. And age-wise, I ended up in the middle of them. And I was born in Jeonju. Um, and so we had two adopted daughters and then a, a biological daughter. We were only 27 months apart, so kind of like triplets. <laughs> and so when you think about trying to raise three children, really young, very close in age, we all kind of developed our own personality. So mine was follow the rules, uh, try to minimize the amount of trouble, um, get really good grades. But I was also really prickly. I tried my best to hold my emotions in. Right, not show emotions as much as possible. Do you know where any of that came from? Sort of a prickly, defensive, uh, uh, maybe private? Do you know where that originated? Well, I try to put myself in a little child's shoes. And, you know, I have two young children. Well, I have two teenagers now. They're not young. They're grown up, um, 19 and 16. But when they were each about two and a half years old or three, I'd start to get really emotional. And I'd start to think about, like, what would it be like to be that age and then to be separated from your entire family? And you look at the developmental level at kids that age and— and, like and you're my, talking about your age at adoption, about yeah. about three. Yeah, about three years old, right? You can think uh, they're speaking full sentences, they're mobile, they're playing with everybody, they know who their mom, dad, siblings, aunties, uncles, right? They know who all these people are in their lives. And now imagine all of that completely disappearing from their life. So you had grown to the point where you actually remember the event. I don't remember the event. I think that's my point, which is it's such a traumatic experience for these children. If you think about everything disappearing in their lives, that I think they naturally try to survive and protect themselves in whatever way they personally do, right? So my story is going to be one way. Um, there's been 200,000 Korean adoptees adopted to the United States. They're each going to have their own way of dealing with what we now know to be an adverse childhood experience of literally losing your entire family. And we don't often associate adoption with that level of grief. We don't sit there and think, wow, to that little girl, her whole extended family and close family just literally died. So, so what you're telling me is that the prickly aspect of your personality, when you were a young child and then a teenager, you tie that to grief. Yeah, it's a great way to connect that. I do, because I don't think parents knew back then that children needed to 
cope with grief. We, we didn't talk about adoption that way back then, right? They thought they were giving the child a home, right? The child didn't have anyone else. Let's give them a home. We can provide a really great environment for them. But it doesn't necessarily compensate for this massive amount of grief that a little child is actually experiencing. And now there's been a lot more research about when a child goes through that type of experience, the long-term impacts that can have on them. These issues aren't new to Sarah Jones. She's been weighing them for years, and it's all intensely personal. But as things happened, even with years to process how she got launched into life, you know, transported from Korea to live with strangers in America, all those formative experiences of transnational adoption with their attendant grief, well, she just never went looking for her birth family, at least not until just a few years ago. Well, what was happening in the meantime? Sarah was very busy getting through adolescence, doing the college thing, graduating from college, getting a law degree, getting married, starting a family. A professional life came. She's the CEO of Inclusion Pro, which encourages diversity and inclusion in the workplace. And she's a founder of Women Tech Council. That's a national organization focused on the economic impact of women in the tech sector. And she sits on the boards of prominent organizations in the Salt Lake area, including Silicon Slopes and Intermountain Healthcare. In short, she persevered her way with competence and academic prowess into an impressive professional life. But eventually, I kind of think something on the private emotional front had to give, and it had to do, of course, with her origin. I have a very close friend who for many years had no desire whatsoever to look up his birth parents. And then one day it happened. What was the turning point where you decided, yes, I will do this not just as kind of a background, latent thing, I'm going to actively pursue it. What, what, what flipped the switch? Yeah, I wouldn't say I was actively against finding my birth family. I just wasn't actively for it, if that makes sense. And so the thing that kind of tipped the scale was, you know, I've got two children and my kid said, well, I want to meet Korean grandma and grandpa. And this is when they were, you know, a little bit younger. And I was like, oh, well, And I didn't really have anything to say to my child. And there's part of me that's like, as hard as adoption's been for me, is it fair for my children to not know who their birth family is in Korea? And because adoption isn't just about me, it's about other people uh, that I care about. And so I finally decided I was ready, emotionally kind of equipped, because again, you don't know what the story is going to be. And I I felt like I was finally ready to kind of put myself out there and just see, just see if we can find them. Now, I did not think I was going to find them in three months. (laughs) I mean, I thought it was going to be years. So I was just a little bit, okay, we'll make an effort. And if nothing happens, I'm okay with that because that's the other thing you have to be ready for. It could be heartache, It could, you know, I I think people don't know if they're not adopted, they don't realize there's been a lot of um, people who've reunited with their birth families and then their birth family and they, for whatever reason, say, hey, we're going to part ways again. And I think that's devastating as well, or the birth family refuses to meet them. Don't forget where we started this story. Unlike most adopted children, Sarah arrived in her adoptive family with that conspicuous cryptic tattoo. Her new parents had it removed, but after that procedure, it wasn't altogether erased. On her arm, there remained a, a faint shadow of it. We'd ask when we meet Asian people, we'd say, have you ever seen this symbol? Do you know, is it a letter? Is it is it a symbol? Is it a number? Like, can you help us understand nobody could recognize it? Sarah couldn't help thinking that pattern contained some kind of clue, something that might be key to helping her find her birth family. If you look at it, if you're looking at my arm, it's a cross or what we thought was a cross or an X, and it's got four dots underneath it. And I didn't actually see the true visual until I started looking 
for my birth family and I took a permanent marker. I'm like, okay, let me see if I can redraw this on my arm. And so I took a photo of that. You know, we're at this era of social media and I was like, okay, well, I don't know Koreans. So you got to get this type of information in front of Koreans who are living in the country and, and how can I see if there's a way that people might be able to see it, recognize it. So I started pushing out my story on social media. There's a database in Korea for adoptees searching for their birth families. And there's also within Korea, I think, a movement of people who actually want to help people reunite with their birth family. So you've got a lot of empathetic people in Korea who are willing to help. I had people that were willing to share in the newspaper, do a TV um, segment, and then share on social media. If you go back to the years just after the Korean War, all the way up to the present, well over 200,000 children have been adopted transnationally from Korea. Most of these Korean children have landed in the United States, and with numbers like that, and for very complex reasons, actually, of privacy and poverty, cultural stigma, family shame. Making a successful match-up to birth parents is, at the very least, fraught and often impossible. Coming up, you'll hear about the fruits of Sarah Jones's social media campaign to find her parentage. She may never have been successful. Statistically, the odds were stacked against her, except for the fact that she wasn't the only person in this world with that tattoo. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Here's how things play out for Sarah Jones. She actively gets her story out there, connecting with one of the various organizations that network to help adoptees in America find their birth families back in Korea. They circulate a photo of her arm, now untattooed but with a simple trace in permanent marker, and social media just does its thing. People share it. So it turns out that one of my brother's friends was watching social media following this group, and he saw the picture and he instantly knew. He's like, oh, that's the tattoo of my friend's family. And so he called up his friend. That friend being one of Sarah's two biological brothers, each of whom had a tattoo matching hers. Three siblings, three identical tattoos. And the reason the friend even remembered this tattoo was because of all the trouble he saw it cause its owner back in school days. Just as Sarah's adoptive parents had anticipated on this side of the ocean that Sarah could quickly be ostracized because of her tattoo. I mean, what elementary school kid in the 70s was ever tattooed? For her two brothers back in Korea, their conspicuous markings had indeed already led to bullying from classmates. And with that bullying came a lot of heartache. Now, it's not difficult to imagine the heartache there. That's very understandable. But at the very root of things, the two boys knew that their tattoos had a reason. They were ages six and eight when they, together with their younger sister, about three, were placed in a group facility. Being older, the boys weren't really deemed eligible for adoption, so they were kept at a children's welfare center and educated there. Their toddler sister was separated from them, moved to an orphanage, and put up for adoption. Eventually, about five or six years later, it's a long time, the boy's father was able to return to the welfare center and reclaim his two boys. Sarah had long since been taken to the United States. So for those boys, the token on their arms reminded them of a lost little sister. Here's a scene that played out when the second son was still a child. His friend saw him and he was crying because he was being picked on and bullied again because of the tattoo. And so he asked why he was so sad. And so he shared that he was sad because he misses his little sister who was adopted out and that's why they had the tattoos, right? And so that was always kind of etched in that friend's mind. Etched well enough for him to recognize the symbol many, many years later when he just happened to see it on Facebook. So he called up my brother said, I think I found your sister in America. And my brothers were just stunned, like, you know, amazed. And it only took a few hours. I, I just think the power of technology is so fascinating, social media, to, to be able to share more globally in a way that maybe traditional media forms aren't able to do. I think I just heard you say that that image, within moments, uh, 
sealed the case. Yeah. And parties on both sides knew. Well, yes, we knew, but I'm a lawyer by training. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they re- they reached out, which was lovely, and I was stunned, and I was like, oh my gosh, I just, it, it's interesting, your brain, because, well, for me personally, I just didn't want to think about my birth family, who they were. I was like, I must be a princess somewhere, you know, the the fairy tale story. But um, there's a level of disbelief, actually, when someone reaches out to you and they're like, we're your birth family. It's not something that you can quickly process. And so we had a few message exchanges. We don't speak the same language, unfortunately. I don't speak Korean. And... I asked, hey, would you be willing to do a DNA test just to make sure? I I know we have matching tattoos, but (laughs) just to make sure, would you be able to do a DNA test? So they did. So they were willing to do that. And just anything that I asked just to confirm that we're birth family and they were really wonderful. And so I, I went out to visit them for the first time four years ago. And unfortunately, my father had passed away 10 years earlier, so um, his wish never came true. I'm sure he would have loved to have been physically there to uh, be able to see all of his children there um, again. But I had found out a week before I got to Korea that he had also tattooed his own arm with the symbol because all three of us had been put in welfare center, right? So he wasn't sure what was going to happen to any of us. You know, and my brothers were able to go back and live with family again. But by the time my father was able to go back and get them, because he had been injured and wasn't able to work. So it took a few years for him to get back on his feet and be able to get my brothers. But by then, I had already been adopted out of the country. So I think it's hard to imagine what it might be like to be a parent and just have to completely rely on people to hopefully make the right choice. Um But yeah, he didn't have any control over whether or not any of us stayed in the country or ended up getting raised or educated the way that he had hoped. If this story were to be told from your father's point of view, let's make him, I mean, stories have multiple sides, but let's make him for right now the center of this story. What happened to him in his life with family? So my father was a manual laborer in South Korea. So he lived in a a small town called Jeonju, which was farming country, and he was a roof tile layer. I actually saw once on a PBS special, and they were doing this thing in Korea, and I saw these people walking across the roof with these heavy bags on their back carrying tiles. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's what my father did, you know, and it's very manual labor. Uh, He ended up getting pleurisy, I believe is what it's called, where his lungs started to get really inflamed and it was affecting his spine and he wasn't able to work. And so he had gotten injured. I don't know if that was like, you know, some sort of back injury or something like that. He had three kids by then. Uh, Unfortunately, his wife had left the family and he's the oldest of six siblings. So if you think about Korean culture and being the oldest male, there's a lot of responsibility attached to that. And so the younger siblings uh, tried to help as much as possible to care for us. But I think at at some point, um, he had to make a decision how to best care for his own children. And so the Children's Welfare Center was the choice that he ended up making. I did have a grandmother as well that was alive at the time, and I think they... I think they kind of tagged team to take care of us. And from what I learned, my grandmother would come visit us at the Children's Welfare Center. So I'm sure it was difficult for my father to walk. And uh, she went to the welfare center one day and found out I had been sent away. And that's how they found out that I was no longer in the country. So I, I sit there and I imagine for my father, what a horrible way to find out that you've lost a child he he must have had some uh, apprehension going into this whole scenario to to place those tattoos on you. He knew at some level maybe that there would be a separation. Yeah, because they have to relinquish their rights when they put their children in the foster center. So I think foster systems have evolved quite a bit uh, 
since then, but back then, they had to relinquish their rights. Transracial adoption actually started in the 1950s, so it had been around for over 20 years, mostly because of the Korean War and all of the wartime babies. So certainly, I think people knew that that was a possibility. And if you kind of look at the data, which is kind of ironic, but if you look at like when Roe v. Wade was passed, the birth rate in the United States went down, but there's a huge spike in adoptions in South Korea. That's my year. My year is one of the highest spikes of, a, of adoption, right? And so the adoption system had been well-developed by the time my father was making this decision. So I'm sure he knew it was a possibility. As Sarah sheds more and more light on things here, hang on to this pivotal fact. Sarah's father is the one who put the tattoo on his children's arms and on his own. And he made those tattoos expressly so that if separated, they could find each other again in the future, lay claim on each other. More on that and on what the tattoo meant in just a minute, but back to our conversation. I'm just trying to imagine being in his shoes. And, um, and at that point, well, I also want to say this. It kind of seems like most stories of adoptions involve the man going AWOL, not the, the mother. Yeah, I am glad you brought that up. And I think it, it's so interesting how mothers are central to the adoption narrative, both the birth mother, the adoptive mother, and then fathers kind of get this, I don't know, second-class citizen. <laughs> um, and I, th- I think that is also maybe a, a wonderful part of my story that helps to remind people that fathers deeply, deeply cared about their children. Had you thought more about who your mother might have been or who your father might have been before you learned about the family story? Did you gravitate towards, I'm doing a maternity search? Did you think, I'm doing a paternity search? Oh, that's, that is such a great question. I probably envisioned reconnecting with a mother first. That's probably what I expected to happen more, right? And so it's kind of ironic because I have two sisters in America, but now I have all these brothers and men in Korea. So that's kind of fun. Um, Feels like some balance there in my life. But, um, you know, I still wonder about my birth mother. I think that life was very difficult back then. I think women had difficult choices to make. I do a lot of work around gender equality. And so... I I don't sit here being really angry that my mother left. I sit there and I wonder why. I wonder what the circumstances were and what choices she had to make and what choices she ended up making after. And I I think it was probably harder to be a woman than a man, right? And um, anyway, I, I have a lot of empathy for whatever it was that she felt like she had to do. Um, but... You know, I think in either way, in either case, I'm sure there was a lot of shame associated, no matter what, for both men and women. Um, I think we just hear a lot more stories about single mothers and the shame and, and the pressure and the lack of resources they have to raise their children. Are you aware of just the, the incredible improbability of having reconnected? Does that, does that cross oh, your yeah. mind much? Oh, yeah. That's actually why I went back and forth on whether or not I wanted to make the effort because I had seen like so many cases where it took years and years and years and people are going to Korea and, and showing around a photo, right? Do you recognize this child? And just how difficult it is for people to find their birth family without any information. Of course, I had adoption records, but um, there had been enough understanding by the adopted community that your records may or may not be true. Your name may or may not be true. Your birth date that they put on there may or may not be true, which actually happened in my case, not my real birthday. The city it says that you're born in may or may not be true. So you're kind of going in like this really uh, foggy area where uh, you really have to want to know and be ready to know because you might have a different set of circumstances. Now, my story, I think, is 
is one of the more positive adoption stories that I've heard, but there's also some really sad, sad, traumatic ones. And it's like adoption roulette. You don't know which which is your story, right? And so for you to want to find and reconnect with your birth family, you're also choosing to learn things about you that you may or may not want to know. Confident now that she had found her brothers, Sarah's next steps would shift from investigative work to emotional work. In 2018, she went to Korea to meet her family, the Yoon family. A lot of cameras were there to capture the moment. How a reunion like this might go is never really a given. Like Sarah said, an adoptee never knows what they're going to find in a birth family. They never know exactly how they're going to be received. We went to my birth town and we went to the place where the well was, where he gave us our tattoos. And it was a really emotional moment because my brothers were coming back to this place as well. They hadn't been back for years. And so for, I think, all of us going back to the place, it was that moment that bonded us with the Yoon tattoo, I think was a big moment. That spot is, I think, a critical part of our story where our father's making a decision to give us a mark that would make sure that we could find each other again. It was interesting, though. The producer kept trying to ask me, is this bringing back memories? Are you remembering now? And I was three years old, right? So not a, not a little baby. But it's interesting that your brain locks away those painful memories, and I, I don't think I would want those memories back. Like, who wants to remember being separated from their family? Let me just say that if the adult Sarah could not remember getting the tattoo in the first place, she did share with me a story from her childhood that kind of reveals the trauma she went through originally at that well. I was two and a half when this tattoo was put on my arm. I mean, it was old-fashioned needle, thread, ink. It was it was not these fancy little machines we have now. And it's quite large. So I don't know if your listeners, I mean, we're looking at um, on a full-grown arm, about what, two inches by three inches? So it's a large tattoo. Um, and... I'm sure I was crying the entire time. And in fact, when my adoptive mother told me that we were going to go to a doctor to have it removed, I started crying again because I could probably imagine the pain, but I didn't know when they put you to sleep, it doesn't hurt, right? But I didn't know that. Sarah, we've only briefly talked about what the tattoo looks like, and we've talked about what it was intended to do and the fact that it accomplished its mission, but... Did you learn anything from your brothers about its uh, symbolism? Was it lettering? Was it code? Something like that? So it turns out that my father was Christian, and it was a Christian cross. And then the four dots were actually my father, my two brothers, and myself. So the four of us. And it never crossed my mind, like not even once, you know, that, oh, this is a symbol of my family. I've been carrying my family on my arm this whole time. I don't know why I never thought that, but it's just, again, we, we describe maybe some of the protective mindset that goes into even contemplating that this might be what I now know it is. You know, and to find out that my father, um, for him, it was a symbol of our family praying. So I think from there, you can really catch the depth of what this meant what have you learned about how life went for your brothers, for your family, the Yoon family, when your father uh, retrieved them from the Children's Welfare Center? What then? They left Jeonju, went three hours north by, by fast train to Seoul, and basically restarted their lives, you know? And um, it was hard. I, I can only imagine, like, the amount of resilience and, and work, constant work it took. But... You know, I think they were very relieved to be able to go back and live with family. So they ended up staying at the welfare center, and they were educated and things like that there. And then I was sent to a different orphanage, and so they stayed together and had no idea why I was sent out. My older brother actually always resented my father for that. When they were coming home, I was not coming with them. 
because they knew me, right? They knew the, this little sister, and she was not coming back with them. So that, that I think, was always a very difficult thing for the family because my older brother had a lot of anger around the fact that I was adopted out of the country. And again, children do not always understand why their parents have to make certain decisions, right? And so I think it was always a thing that they had to deal with in their family growing up. But I think they were very relieved to be out of that situation, which, from what I understand, was horrible, and to be back with family. In, in what you just told me, it's quite clear that they missed you. They had, they had a loss. It's, it's, it's easy to tell this story as though the parents have had a loss. The father has had a loss. But that's a powerful commitment on their part to remember you, remember how they felt on, on losing you, and not trying to expunge that memory. They've, mm-hmm. They kept the memory, it seems. Mm-hmm. Well, when we were in our birth city, they used to take care of me, right? So when we were in daycare, like as the oldest brother is taking care of the little sister, and he would sneak me extra treats and snacks and things like that, you know. And I definitely had that caretaker, like these brothers that were watching out for me. So I was very fortunate. But once I was separated from them, I didn't have that anymore. And those are the types of stories that my brothers will tell and describe is when they were holding me and and I peed on their leg or when they were taking care or they were stealing corn snacks to to give me extra treats. And so it's lovely to hear the stories of what it was like when we interacted together. Have you been able to turn over enough stones now to know about any of the the efforts your father may have made after he'd been reunited with the boys? I'm talking about efforts to find you, maybe even to bring you back home. Um, I I know when technology started coming around, he asked my niece to help him do some Google searching and things like that. That was much harder back then. But I think there was part of him that always wanted to find me, always hoped I was out there, and hopefully that I was happy and healthy and, and alive and well. I visited with Sarah twice, just before her second trip, and as soon as she got back, we chatted again. But I kind of got a feeling that even with all of her questions after the first visit and the long hiatus of four years before going back, she was already kind of healing a bit. And she could talk about the wonder in the story of what happened to her and her family situation, even with all the very painful aspects of their separation. I mentioned earlier that I spent a lot of my earlier years and into adult really protecting my emotions, right? I'm not going to show, I'm not going to let you feel, um, I'm not going to tell you how I'm really feeling inside. And so it's just like this holding it for 40 years, that's just a lot. And I remember getting ready that first time to go visit my birth family and I was talking to my therapist and I made this decision to allow myself to feel, like to just feel and allow myself to feel whatever emotions I that were happening, right? Happy, sad, whatever those emotions were. And I, I think it was probably the first time that I felt like the full range of my humanness. So um, there were lots. I mean, we cried a lot, right? So... But we also laughed a lot. And so um, just allowing myself to fully feel the experience of reuniting with my birth family where I would imagine, you know, um, when I was separated, I, I imagine this probably even started before I was adopted out because in my adoption records, you know, they described I wouldn't talk with anyone. I would only talk in whispers. So that starting of shutting myself off And protecting myself started once I left my Korean brothers, right? They were my protectors. So so now I'm all alone. There's nobody there. And so I think for me, probably personally, the awe and wonder is in, in really seeing that I myself have a much wider range of what I'm capable of feeling and capable of showing and expressing than I had previously thought possible. And then... The idea, too, that um, which you're never actually really taught to believe or we didn't know to teach children to believe this, 
that there's actually people who loved and remembered you. Um, the narratives we're told are quite different. You're talking about the narratives that are told once you've been adopted. Yes, uh-huh. they're quite uh, the, different. That, that, that refers specifically to the story of your separation. Right. And there's a lot of unknowns. I mean, gosh, people have no idea what happened to you. So they're trying to make you feel better and trying to make you feel like it, this is okay. But Rescuers. Yeah, rescuers, and and it was so horrible over there. This is so much better. This is going to be so much better for you. Um, I think part of the wonder is, for the first time in my life, there's people who loved me before I was adopted, right? And that's the thing that we don't ever know is, was there someone who loved me? You know, before I was three years old, I have no baby pictures. Was there anyone that helped me? Anyone that cuddled me? Anyone that, you know, and I think... Those are the things that if we knew more about that, um, I think it would allow ourselves to to maybe not cut ourselves off so much. For some reason, there's kind of this tussle and tug of war between birth parents and adoptive parents. And it's okay to say they loved you just as much as we do. And that actually, I think, makes someone feel much more whole as a human being. And so I think it's filling in those kind of pieces that I never knew, that I wondered about, but didn't know. There's something I think has served Sarah very well in this very dramatic season of her life, learning about her family of origin. I think it's that she's been so open-eyed about everything, what really was, what really is, what are the real consequences of reunification with a birth family. And maybe being level-headed, being so open-eyed for Sarah is just second nature. I mean, think about this. An American mother with two teenage sons. She's a lawyer. She specializes in gender equity and diversity training. She's got to be open-eyed. And uh, raised in an American home with American parents and sisters. How does somebody with this very busy life even make room for a newly discovered part of the family? She's already got quite a life here. Finding her birth family in Korea made her even busier. She gave a TED Talk, has had multiple subsequent opportunities to tell her experience. But this is an ongoing story. And so over Labor Day 2022, with all of her unanswered questions, Sarah flew back to visit her Korean relatives. Was it easy for the Yoon family just to pick up where they'd left off four years ago? And how do you shape a life with siblings you barely know, whose language you don't speak, and they live half a world away. More perspective from Sarah on these kinds of things coming up next on Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. She's 48 years old. She arrives in Korea again. Sarah Jones is meeting her birth brothers for only the second time since being adopted out of the country some 45 years previous. So I had this lovely translator that spent all the meaningful days with us, and she did a really great job of really helping us jump right into it. What I appreciated about having a translator that does understand Korean culture is, you know, Americans tend to be kind of like kind of brash and out there. And every once in a while, I'd ask a question, and she'd say, well, you know, you wouldn't really ask an older brother that. And I'd be like, oh, I'm really glad you said something because I wouldn't have known. What did she stop you from saying? It was was really, I was joking. I said, well, it's been four years. I mean, I don't know, maybe my brothers got married while I was gone, but I I would be really offended if they hadn't told me and they got married. And so I was kind of like, hey, can you kind of joke with my brothers about that? She's like, we really wouldn't ask an older sibling that. And so it was just like, oh, okay, we're here it would just be a joke, a lighthearted, I hope you didn't not invite me to your wedding over the last four years. Do you really think I'm family or not family? So just things like that that I think culturally are slightly different. Just got to navigate around those. Well, that actually raises a number of questions for me. Like, I want to know uh, if your brother's are really formal around you because of cultural norms or maybe there's a a gender issue, kind of an impediment of brothers relating to this new sister. Uh, And and maybe this is the best time to to toss in here also that you had your Korean-American adopted sister with you too and her son right along with you on this second trip. That could have changed the dynamic too. My brothers were just 
really talkative and, and they like to joke a lot. Now, it's interesting having my nephew there. He is 27 and it's like the guys like to bond with the men. I was like, I'm a little bit jealous because like they could just kind of, I don't know, do these goofy jokes and they just thought they were funny. And I was like, oh, which is great. Like, I'm really happy that they just brought him into the fold. Was that once again sort of a cultural distinction of, of behavior? Quite possibly. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly, because my uncle, so so my, my aunt's husband, this was my first time meeting him as well, which I, I think it's always lovely to, to meet, you know, their extended families and just see that, you know, how they live their lives and just, um, just you know, the caring that they have for each other. So that's always fun. Well, what you're talking about there is kind of a degree of separation or two away from your actual siblings. And I, I, I'm wondering, back to the, the, the brothers, did you feel kind of a— a bond strengthening with your brothers on this second trip. Any any examples along that line? Remember, I'm almost 50, right? And I've eaten Korean food before, so this is not my first time eating Korean food, but it'd be interesting. Sometimes my older brother would take food away from me, and I'd be like, why? Like, you know, a pepper or something salty, and he'd be like, that's too spicy for you, or that's too salty for you. It's very cute, and the translator's, oh, he wants to take care of his little sister. Like, it's my responsibility to look after you. So that is very different because I'm so independent. I've got sisters. I do have older siblings, but it's not something that would be a normal part of my day-to-day. Yeah, and you're a brash American. Yeah, and so, I'm, well, yeah, and I was like, why did you take that away from me? I like spicy peppers, you know, so I like, take it back. So, yeah, we get those little little funny sibling moments, right, where it's like, I guess it's nice to just see that they're going to view me as their little sister, no matter how old we are. So you've all passed through that passageway where it's it's real now? I don't know. There's some cl- complexities that they may or may not ever see. It's really kind of a second date if you think about it, right? And there's only so much you can know about someone just with that limited amount of time. There just may be a limit where it's like you can only go this far in really understanding. But I have to say, from everything you've said, when we first spoke and today, it sounds like it's gone so well that there could be a third and a fourth and a fifth date and on, uh, ongoing. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. No, so I'm, I'm not saying that we don't love each other or anything like that. There's just so much more to know and so much more like that, that we've missed. And my older brother's sent a message after, because it was a very short trip, and he's like, the number of days of us continuing to see each other is less than the number of days that we've lost, right? If you think about where we are at in our lives, and the time is getting shorter and shorter and shorter, right? And that's always like this reality that's going to always be part of every single visit, is how much longer do I get to see them? And, you know, physically and health-wise, there's going to be a point where it's, it's going to be cut off again. So there's just always this reality, no matter how much time we spend together, which is so little, can never make up for everything we've lost. Did you learn more about your father and what he was like? I, I know you've seen a picture of him. Oh, well, this is what I did when I, <laughs> when I first got the photo, right? Because, again, no genetic mirrors, never met anybody that looks like me. Um, and so, you know, I immediately started, like, trying to splice uh, my father's photo with mine, right? So, you know, Instagram, layout, all of those cool things. I'm, I do tech, so it's like, oh, all right, let's, let's kind of see if we match up here. Um, now, what's kind of funny is that uh, in America, we smile a lot in our photos. But in Asia, like a lot of the photos of my Korean family, they're not smiling or they, I mean, I'm sure they're smiling, but it's like their their mouths are a lot straighter, their teeth are hidden. So I actually had a hard time finding a photo of myself with my mouth closed because <laughs> I'm so trained in the American ways, you know? <laughs> And so, yeah, I was uh, splicing, and you know, it's just so funny. My uncle has my nose, like, okay. And you spend a lot of time making those type of connections. And when then when I was physically seeing them in Korea, luckily we had a lot of video because there was, you know, um, a Korean television station with us. And they sent me some of the footage, and I would see my, my brother crinkle his nose and do that kind of smile thing the way I do it. And I'm like, oh! Oh my gosh, I've never seen anybody do that. Those are the type of things that you're watching for and constantly feeling and like, oh my gosh, you know, there's another human that that is like me out there. 
Did you get to learn more about your father's personality? I don't know if it's a cultural thing or or what is it that I'm not getting like a ton of information and I don't know if it's out of respect or what exactly. He was smart. He was kind. He really tried hard to make it in life, those kind of answers. So it's really hard for me to really know what was going on. But I think that I can gather a lot of desperation and how... I think innovative, it was that this idea would come to his mind, you know, of all the options of trying to keep your family together. I would imagine the amount of failure he must feel as a father, as an oldest son, an oldest son of six siblings. I just wonder, you've described him as cornered. I wonder if he's he's stuck in a terrible situation. Mm -hmm. And then he has this physical thing he does and gets the tattoos on his children. It's physical. It's tangible. Do you think of it as the best he could do in the circumstances? I think so. My understanding is that you have to relinquish your rights to the state when you send them to children's welfare services. And so I think he very much understood the lack of control that he had. I probably haven't described very much my condition. When I was in the orphanage, I was very malnourished. And so in my child photos, my stomach's swollen, my hair's brittle, it's falling off. Um, it had chicken pox. Um, so I was not in very good health condition. And so um, it wasn't just that he was in a hard situation. His children were also starving. I think that that's a, that's a tough situation for any parent to realize that they cannot provide for their child. Tragic and not, I mean, certainly not of his own Pleurisy is an autoimmune disease, right? It's a swelling of your lungs and the lining of your lungs, and then it affected his ability to walk. And it's just a horrible set of circumstances that he had to experience. Where did he spend his later years? I guess the home you lived in with him as a child, that's been destroyed. But you got to see the place where he was in his final years. Most of the housing in Korea are these huge, tall buildings, right? Just oh my gosh, you can fit a whole a whole Utah neighborhood in one of these buildings, right? It is just amazing how good they are at building up. So it was actually a really big surprise to me that his house was single level. In the area that he lived, it was slightly more rural, and they actually had all these gardens around the house. So they were planting squash and pumpkin and chilies and Napa cabbage, of course, for kimchi and just all of these really beautiful vegetables and so I actually was really, really happy that he got to live in more of a private home that was a few bedrooms, kitchen, living area in kind of this little neighborhood of other little homes. And it wasn't nothing fancy or anything like that, but it felt like a very intimate community. And if anybody's been to Korea, I mean, it goes forever, Seoul. Like, it's one big city, then you drive, and then there's more buildings than you drive. There's more buildings, and it's never-ending. But they ended up actually living closer to the DMZ than I thought they had. They did surprise us with a trip to the DMZ, and I'll, I'll be honest, I've never actually wanted to go there. It's not something that was ever on my bucket list. And I'm like, hey, I'd actually really like to stay away from that place if I can, you know? But it's interesting, right? We toured one of the visitor sites there, and then— my brother started singing one of the songs that was on the plaque. And then the translator started translating the song. I don't know if you're familiar with the song. It's 30 Years. Let's stop right there. The Lost 30 Years, that was the title song for a series produced in 1983 by the Korean Broadcasting System. It featured special live broadcasts with families, reunited after long separations because of the partition of the Korean Peninsula into North and South. Before that series ended, over 450 hours of television were produced, all about people looking for their relatives, and more than 10,000 families were reunited. That's the song Sarah's talking about, the one her brother started singing and her translator started translating off of a plaque on the South Side of the Demilitarized Zone, or DMZ. So the lyrics say, 30 years of time I spent missing someone as it rains or snows or winds. I don't know how much I cried because I had no one to rely on. I finally reunited with my siblings. I am spending time with them, but I cry out loud, mother and father, where on earth are you? I've spent 30 years crying, waiting, and wondering if it will be tomorrow or the day after. I don't know how much I cried thinking about my lost hometown. 
I finally reunited with my siblings, and I am spending time with them, but I cry out loud, Mother and Father, where on earth are you? So too many, too many symbols and corollaries to separation and adoption, and I just walked away being like, wow, maybe there's something about the DMZ and something about the separation of North and South Korea that hits a little bit closer to home than I had originally understood. So that was a, a really, I think, powerful moment for my visit. I have just one last thing. Given the fact that you've been public and the story's there for people to see and hear, and it's been it's been crafted and shaped by people who do media, like people like us, right? Mm-hmm. We get we get our hands on a story like this, and then, then, then it can be used or abused. You know, I did a social post just to update folks on I'm back from Korea, and it was kind of interesting how many people said, you look at peace. And I was like, interesting. To me, that feels like another part of the adoption narrative that now you found your birth family, you can be at peace. And I thought, oh, wow, there's just so much more to that. And it's kind of like, how do I tell them? You still carry an inner turmoil of everything that's lost. And I I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because I think it, it continues to make you feel present and aware and alive, if that makes sense. That's just kind of how I view this whole journey and experience, right? It's just constant learning, growing, accepting, and accepting what can't ever be. I think that's the thing I struggle with the most is what cannot be. I am fortunate enough to have the experience where my birth family did not reject me again. And I'm able to continue those relationships and keep them moving forward. I feel very grateful for that. Our thanks goes to Sarah for taking us along with her on her amazing journey, the journey so far, one that wouldn't have been possible were it not for her father's hopeful, even desperate, loving act of tattooing the family with that cross and four circles. Sarah Jones is CEO of Inclusion Pro. She lives in Salt Lake City. We were thrilled to chat with her right here in our studios. This episode of Constant Wonder was produced by Tenery Taylor with help from Colson Darrington and Paige Crumperman Darrington. Sound design by Addie Mangum and Josh Cloward. If you want to see what the tattoo actually looks like, check it out on our website, byuradio.org. We hope you like what you've been hearing on Constant Wonder, and if you do, please leave us a five-star review, maybe a comment, too. That helps more people find and then enjoy our show. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.